There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Living Room Logic. Welcome back to Season 2 of Living Room Logic. This episode is all about the world's fascination with Mars, how many times we've tried and often failed to get stuff to the red planet, and we weigh up the pros and cons of sending humans there. Give the podcast a huge boost by following or subscribing to it wherever you get your podcasts, and check out our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Living Room Logic to join our logical following. This season is supported by FameLab Ireland. Welcome, everybody to another episode of Living Room Logic where two scientists who know too much about very, very little talk about things that they love to talk about. And this week we have a hell of a thing to ponder on. A hell of a thing. A red thing. Mars. The fourth planet from the sun. That fourth rock that lights up our sky. Mm. That's been making us think and think and think for a long time. The ancient Sumerians looked at it and thought it was a god of war and plague and this was also continued by the romans we use it as a symbol of masculinity the symbol for mars is the circle with the arrow to the upper right and as humans have looked at the stars forever wondering if we are alone we pondered the man on the moon and the martians of mars and a planet which is too close to ignore but really really different It's only half as wide as Earth and has 15% of the mass, 37% of Earth's gravity. It takes 687 days to orbit the sun, even though the length of a day on Mars is only 24 hours and 40 minutes. It has 1% of the atmospheric pressure of Earth. This is so low that when water is melting from ice, it cannot exist as water and it will sublimate which is when it goes straight from ice to gas, skipping the water step because the atmospheric pressure is so low. The Earth's average temperature is 14 degrees, and the average temperature on Mars is minus 46 degrees. And none of that makes me want to visit the place. If this was a holiday destination, I would have declined. (laughs) But we're still obsessed. Maybe the grass is always greener, or at least in this case, redder. (laughs) And recently it was in the news that we sent a new robotic creature, which we're all obsessing over. And Aidan's going to tell us a little bit about that, about Percy. Oh, Percy. I could sing an old Irish song about you. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's the new new rover that Mm. they just landed successfully in a place called the Jezero Crater. And I'll talk a little bit about the Jezero Crater and why we care about it. But Perseverance is... Pretty much one of the most complex space rovers that humans have ever built to date. It has lasers, it has x-ray, it has radar capabilities, it has 19 different cameras pointing in every which direction, taking pictures and videos, everything. 
that it sees. The one they, they uploaded last week was phenomenal of the heat shield popping off and you being able to see its descent towards Mars and it actually landing. And I'll talk us through what's called EDL or entry, descent and landing. Absolutely phenomenal. So this thing has a nuclear powered battery made of plutonium 238. We've already talked a little bit about these isotopes in season one. Basically, this thing decays at a constant natural rate. It's really bad for humans, but it's really good <laughs> at keeping Percy nice and cozy warm, especially during the night when it gets frickin' cold in Mars. It can get up to hun- minus 150 degrees Celsius at the South Pole in the winter. Pretty bleak. So Percy has to have a lot of insulation and a really decent heat and energy source. So that's what he's got. The thing is, though, Percy cost about $2.7 billion to build. So (laughs) what they do in NASA and the the JPL, which is also known as the Jet Propulsion Lab, is they build Percy to send to Mars. But they also build Mm. a second copy, a duplicate, exactly the same in Pasadena in California. And for every single encounter or situation that Percy gets into that they need to work out really fast, they... Do it first on the one in California and they simulate it and then they do it on Mars. That's really cool. So Percy's actually the biggest as well. He's the largest rover to ever be sent to Mars. He weighs about one metric ton. It's the largest payload that's ever been sent to Mars. And so that's the same weight as a standard four-door car, or at least in Europe it is. Because we know Americans how he is like your big cars. The thing is though, like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's been a lot of rovers okay and, and we ca- will talk through them but the difference and the the thing that kind of puts percy out in front is is that none of these samplers have actually gone out and collected core samples to be returned to earth and that's percy's main objective is to actually there's going to be a retrieval mission that will launch in 2023 at the earliest and the percy's going to take these rock core samples and do a hell of a lot of other stuff but those samples will be pooped out onto the Martian floor in these safe little sample bottles. And basically another uh, rover will be sent with the capability of shooting those in a rocket back home, which is just so cool. And the thing is, though, yeah, like, man, we need really this. Cool. We need to bring the samples back to Earth because there's only so much weight that we can shoot to Mars in a rocket. This one ton is kind of like the threshold we're at for, for sending payloads much farther than the distance of the moon. One other really cool thing that Percy's going to do is this experiment called Moxie. And you might know, if you watch The Martian, uh, Matt Damon uh, being a botanist, his oxygen was being depleted in his encampment that was absolutely falling apart and he had to create oxygen somehow. And so he decided to do it by using water and taking the oxygen out of the water. And it's a very dangerous explosive method and he Mm -hmm. he nearly blew himself up Moxie's quite similar but without the explosiveness in that Mars's atmosphere is very high in CO2 carbon dioxide and the dioxide part is what they want to take out in that uh, experiment and see can Percy in the Moxie box it's it's this gold plated box can it create oxygen from the CO2 that's naturally there in Mars and if that's the case then it would be quite easy to send humans so that we could have an oxygen supply and we could basically create high-powered jet fuel to send us home again. So really cool. 
one more so cool. exceptionally cool thing that Percy has, and it's this cute little helicopter called Ingenuity. I didn't realize that this was so cool because when you look at it, it looks really simple. It looks like a drone. People who can afford a drone can get a drone. But the thing is, Mars's atmosphere, as you said, is extremely thin and it's something like 1% the, the density of Earth's mm -hmm. atmosphere. And so it's actually extremely hard to fly anything. So if you want to go back up, oh, yeah. you need an incredible amount of power to push the air because there's barely anything to push. The reason mm -hmm. helicopters and planes work in Earth so well is because they're pushing that dense atmosphere and the air, literally pushing it through engines and through rotors. This ingenuity is like 83 grams in weight. It's super light. It's got these two rotors. One is going clockwise and the one right underneath it is going anti-clockwise. And they're like a meter long on either side. It looks like it's going to fall over. It looks really imbalanced. This is what you need to create the lift in Mars atmosphere. And so they've never flown something powered flight in Mars atmosphere before. And so this is what's just going to be so cool because if we can figure out how to fly in That's Mars atmosphere crazy, yeah. we can just scale it up and keep scaling it up but you can think that like to lift 83 grams to have wow. a meter long two meter long rotors could only imagine if you're say you got an 80 kg 100 kg human how big those helicopters would have to be right so it's something that you just don't realize that it's really hard to fly when you have a thin atmosphere which is just so cool so this thing launched mm. uh, in the 30th of july in uh, last year which is 2020 they used a nasa atlas v mm. rocket which is one that isn't reusable and it took it seven months uh, traveling at about 40,000 kilometers an hour exceptionally fast to get from earth to mars and there's this really cool thing about the distance between earth and mars every two years the two orbits line up quite well and that's when all of the agencies send all their stuff so actually mm. three missions went at the same time that year china <laughs> and europe well, uh, also sent something wow. because they were like the time is now we have to wait another two or three years if we don't send it now you know this is where we get to actually when it is just about to land on mars and that whole thing is one of the coolest processes uh, just before we we get into it entry descent and landing or edl is also known as the seven minutes of terror percy is entering mars atmosphere at 15 times the speed of a bullet so it's uh, slowed down to 20,000 kilometers an hour <laughs> slowed down it's still going incredibly fast and the reason wow. it's called seven minutes of terror is because not only does it take seven minutes for this whole process to happen but comms on earth are out of the loop and don't get the signal for eight minutes so as soon as it starts entering mars atmosphere it's completely on its own and that's why they have a bunch of really cool automated technology on the rover upon entry to the atmosphere the heat shield takes the brunt of the energy and there's thrusters in the back of the capsule that are keeping it steady. Once about 99% of that energy is dissipated by the heat shield, a supersonic parachute is deployed and the heat shield pops off so that the radar on the rover can like take pictures of the ground and really like in, in minute uh, amount of time map where the hell it is in reality and compare it to what's in its, uh, in its database. <laughs> and... It has an AI system that allows it to autonomously find a suitable landing spot in the Jezero crater. 
At this stage, even with the parachute, the rover is hurtling at the surface of Mars at about 300 kilometers an hour. But the rover has one more thing to show off. It detaches from the space capsule, which had the parachute attached, and is now only attached to a sky crane. With downward facing thrusters that fire full blast to slow the rover down to three miles per hour. So it's attached to this sky crane and then the sky crane drops it down at about 10 meters with four ropes. It's crazy. Just above the surface. So basically they they have to slow down this thing crashing onto Mars to three miles per hour, which is a serious deceleration and then float just above in the sky. Yeah, exactly. And then the sky crane lowers it down and just above the Martian surface, the the ropes just detach and goes boop and it kind of springs onto the floor and the legs are quite suspended so that it can kind of bounce a bit, you know, and take all the shock. And then the sky crane actually flies off and crashes like several kilometers away. But yeah, it's so cool. Like at the end of that that video oh that they put up, your man's just like, Tango Delta Perseverance has landed. And everyone just like freaks out. It's a fucking amazing. Oh, I'd love to be in the meeting where they decided, okay, and then what happens with the sky crane? And someone just goes, <laughs> what do you mean? What happens to the sky crane? We didn't have that in our report. What to do with it? <laughs> yeah. This is the plan to get the rover to land. Or it, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, when uh, the space shuttles are going off and the boosters are dropped off yeah. somewhere over the ocean. Yeah. And they just, yeah. it's like, bye. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, yeah, we knew we weren't going to recover them. But um, even when you said sky crane, I was like, yeah. what the hell is a sky crane? It's literally just hovering and lowering something that's a ton onto the ground. That's And I, I think the reason they came up with it was because, and we'll talk about the previous missions, but basically the previous missions didn't have this. No. And if you actually attach the thrusters to the rover, mm-hmm. there's a chance that something really bad can happen and that you can boom, actually boom. really screw up a lot of the instruments on the rover mm. or on the lander. Mm-hmm. And so attaching the thrusters to this thing that just like flies off and blows up somewhere is a lot better off for the actual thing that you want to do the science with. On that, like, how did we get mm-hmm. here, <laughs> you know, to this situation? Here's here's where we are. Uh, we're, we're sending things the size of cars to Mars. And when we started, it was in 1957 you know, early stages of the Cold War. You know, we heard mm-hmm. about this America versus Russia. This is our part two of that discussion where before we were talking about like nukes and stuff. And now we're talking about the space race in more detail. Mm-hmm. And USA got to the moon first and uh, Russia got the first person into space at the same time as all of this. But since it was such a total failure, we don't talk about it because at the same time, throughout the 60s, they were trying to get stuff to Mars. And I don't mean like, yeah, there was one or two failed missions. I mean, there was a significant amount of failed missions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like the USSR <laughs> tried to launch the Marsnik 1 in 1960, which exploded without leaving Earth. Then oh, they, goodness. And then they tried to do it to the, the second version, the Marsnik 2 which also exploded just off liftoff at the same time. Then 
the USSR was like, okay, Marsnik is cursed. Let's go with the Mars one. Yeah, that's much better. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that this would be a flyby mission. So it would fly by, take photos. And it left Earth in 1962 and it was meant to take photos in 1963. But before it got to Mars, it had a radio failure. And they just lost communication with it. It just... Oh my God, just decided to go off on its own thing. Like, I want to be my own robot. (laughs) I'm going to see the universe. (laughs) Which I'm sure it did. So they finally finally got one out of Earth. And they had it for a year, Aiden. They had it for a year of, like, following it and setting it up. And then one day it just didn't call her back. It just didn't talk back. Just left you on red. It's crazy. So then they were like, okay, maybe not Mars either. So then they had the Sputnik 24, okay, mm-hmm. which was just an, which was a satellite mission, which again, meant to be a flyby. This was in 1962 as well. And it didn't get out of Earth's orbit. It went into Earth's orbit and then went sploosh. This is three splooshes. This is four splooshes. Well, no, three splooshes and a uh, didn't get a call back. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then in 1964, NASA, they came into the program and they were they had their Mariner missions and their Mariner missions were the missions they'd send to planets to have a have a look and see. So they had the Mariner three, which was great. It was fine. And then it had a solar panel failure. So obviously our solar technology wasn't so hot back in the day. Later in 1964. We had the first successful flyby mission to Mars. And this was by NASA with the Mariner 4, right? And it flew by Mars and returned 21 photos in 1965. And this was the first clear photos that we took of Mars. 21 photos. Okay. And it was huge. It was absolutely, absolutely massive, right? Mm -hmm. And then it took four years later to send more Mariner missions to Mars. And it was NASA again. And they sent Mariner 6 and Mariner 7, which went over parts of Mars to take like at a closer distance. So they were much closer to the planet, except mm-hmm. the parts that they went over just happened to be extremely hit by asteroids. So this was the first time we got a proper look at the surface of Mars. And they, mm. they came to the conclusion, oh, Mars is pretty much just the moon because it was covered Mm. in craters, even though Mm -hmm. we now know that that's not true. So, um, you know, we kind of got that false identity of Mars and we were like, oh, it's just that's all it is. It's it's just like the moon. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the USSR, they had a tough time, but they didn't stop trying. And in 1969, they sent up another mission, which also went sploosh, uh, crashed before leaving the Earth's orbit. Then in 1969, they had another one which didn't even get through launch and went sploosh again. Oh, my it, God. Man, do, I, do they have do they have any successful missions? Uh, we will get there. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to win. I just feel bad for them at this stage. They had a tough man. Then NASA in 1971, they came out with Mariner 8, which went sploosh. So it wasn't all great for NASA either. You know, this was after seven other Mariner missions, which were solid. And then they had their own, didn't even get through launch. Wow. So the USSR then in 1971 also came out with the Cosmos 419, which launched, but went sploosh out of Earth's orbit. Oh I'm, I'm, man, I'm telling you. So the, all of these missions that were just like 
tough going. Mm-hmm. They were just to do flybys. And it wasn't until later in 1971 that they started attempting to get orbiters and landers. So these aren't rovers. These are landers. So they land and they try to take data from wherever they land, send it to the orbiter and then send it from the orbiter back to the Earth. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in 1971, the USSR sent Mars 2 and this crash landed. They got it to Mars, but it crashed on the surface of Mars. At this, this point, lander. that's a success. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, we hit it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And interesting thing now that you you that we were talking about it earlier with the how thin the atmosphere was. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that the scientists weren't prepared for the density of the atmosphere because at this point they wouldn't have a clue. They'd have no idea. They wouldn't what have really the exact- known, yeah. So it'd be very difficult to prepare landers right mm-hmm. and in the in the same year they had a second mission sent out which was the Mars 3 from the USSR and it landed it worked for five seconds and okay. then just decided to not work anymore oh come on <laughs> I know I know but the orbiter that they sent worked it went delightfully well Right. Is this a, sorry? Is this a Mariner or a Mars? This is Mars. This is USSR. This is USSR. Okay. Ma- what? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what a win! I feel I know, good man. for them. Me too. I feel too. like they're the underdogs right now. Man, they just had tough, tough times with with In terms Mars of space exploration. Yeah, like there was uh, people were comparing Mars to the Bermuda Triangle. At the time, like, and they were just kind of like, "Are oh, you going to Mars? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything that goes there vanishes." But like, mm-hmm. people were kind of using this as a theory that there was life on Mars because it was almost too hard to get there, and they were saying yeah. that, like, "Oh, well, obviously, everything that you're trying to go there is being shot down by the mm. intelligent Martians living there." I don't know. I just thought it was cool. Anyway, NASA came in that year and kicked everyone's butt with Mariner Nine. And the reason this was cool was because Mariner 9 was a flyby mission that wanted to catch the orbit, and it did. And it got there, and there was a huge dust storm. A huge, huge dust storm that encompassed the entire planet. It put off their mission by, like, six months because they had to wait for it to calm its stuff down, you know? And... Wait, so they could, they basically couldn't map Mars because they couldn't see anything. There was nothing to take a photo of other than a big dust cloud. Oh my God, that's insane. But what was really cool, right, is they could come to some conclusions because as the dust cloud was settling, some things appeared above the surface. So if you have a dust cloud settling, they could see things that were really high up versus the things that were really low down. So this was the first time that they were able to see that there were ancient volcanoes on Mars. This was the first time that they saw it because before, from the top down, it might look like a crater. You couldn't be certain. Yeah, but, yeah. But when they were looking at that. But this was also the mission, this NASA Mariner 9, that first saw the Valles Marineris, the mm-hmm. giant gash in the side of Mars. If you ever look at a picture of Mars, there is a huge canyon, right? And this is called the Valles Marineris, Marineris named after the Mariner 9. Oh, cool. Which which found it. And it was the first time we saw it, which is kind of like, you'd think we would have seen it before that, but absolutely not. This was the first time people were like, oh, God. And it, it puts that is the, yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's weird. And it puts the Grand Canyon to shame. Like, this thing is huge. 
But it did really, really well. So remember the first mission that fl- did a flyby got 21 photos. This badass mission got 7,329 photos. And it was just a, a huge moment in actually getting a good look at Mars. And I really like when you said that when a bad thing happened, something actually good came from it that they would have never have noticed those humongous peaks mm-hmm. um, and those ma- humongous troughs when, when it, this dust was dissipating. Yeah. It was just a little happy little accident. A happy little accident. And yeah, no, but absolutely. It was one of those things because everyone was looking at the pictures and they were like, gosh, Mars is just being a nuisance. <laughs> Two years after that, the USSR went ham and they sent out the Mars 4, the Mars 5, the Mars 6 and the Mars 7, which kind of at this point feels like they're shot. Yeah, they're just o- orbiters and landers trying to get trying to get something, <laughs> you know, something to stick. In, in terms of the sploosh-ometer, like how, how sploosh okay. did they go? So Mars 4 didn't sploosh. It <laughs> left Earth's orbit and it went to Mars, but it missed so it didn't catch Mars and it just flew by. It just... So it, no. just, it, it just... It just was... No. Mars 5. Oh. Mars 5 got to Mars, orbited for a few days and then just stopped working. Oh my God. Unexplained. The Mars 6, it got to Mars and it orbited and it was a total success. But it had a lander and the lander just... Splooshed. So the, again, they just couldn't get the lander to work, which, you know, mm-hmm. is not surprising. So far, there wasn't really any successful landers. And the Mars 7 is my favourite because the Mars 7 was a huge success. The orbiter got yes. into orbit. It was fantastic. And they dropped the lander onto the planet Mars and missed. <laughs> <laughs> they missed. They dropped the land. Imagine holding a rock and, dro- and dropping it to the ground and missing. That's what happened. That's effectively what happened here. It's she totally defied <laughs> physics. And I was like, oh. I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, I'm going- the second thing to go home, the sky crane. And now this. <laughs> like after a series of unfortunate events for the USSR up until the Mars 7 orbiter lander mission in 1973. And that's what happens. <laughs> they missed. Oh my God. How can you not just absolutely appreciate that? It's so difficult. To, to get something to land on Mars, as we were just discussing with Percy, is really hard. And that's why they had to come up with this wild idea to... Because it is wild. Oh, it's a completely nutcase idea. And we'll keep going with nutcases ideas later in the episode. But like... They established that they could shoot things at Mars and it would either crash or miss. <laughs> Scrounge break. Do you ever want to just listen to two overly educated, privileged white men talking about the wonders of science? Me too, right? Even better when they do it for free. All oh, the humanity. Donate to our cause at patreon.com slash livingroomlogic and get early access to episodes, original music, and ridiculously attractive merchandise. NASA finally had some success in the orbiter-lander duo in the Viking missions, didn't they, Aiden? So the summer of 1975, NASA is on a high from the past couple of missions. They had a couple of successful ones. Um, like the moon you know, landing. Yeah, oh yeah, like uh, throwing those guys at the moon and actually getting there and back. So these these Viking landers, there are actually four things. There's 
two landers mm-hmm. and two orbiters. And they actually decided to send two just in case. They were like, we're going to send one. And if the first one just totally splooshes, we're going to send the second. And hopefully we will just adapt. The interesting thing, though, is that, you know, there's 40, maybe 40 or 50 years between this and what we just talked about with the Perseverance lander that just happened. And weirdly, the the landing sequence is actually quite similar, but just with some very key differences. First of all, there was no clear landing site. They threw this thing at Mars. Just hoping for the best. And they were like, we're going we're gonna to hit Mars. We're going <laughs> to hit it. We're going to get that. We're going to make the shot, but I don't know if it's going to be a hole in one. So the idea was that they would send this thing nearly to Mars. And at that point, then they would make an informed decision where they will put it. Mm-hmm. And so they would, can kind of tweak their trajectory so that they can land in a certain area. So that's something that's changed massively is the radius of the landing area because Percy kind of had like a landing site like a small little couple kilometers that's where we're going AI is going to get us there Uh, they basically had to choose a landing site based on pictures that they got from the thing they printed out pictures that the lander sent them and then they all got around in a a round table and were like okay what the hell are we going to do we're going to go here we'll let X marks the spot the other major thing was that they didn't have a sky crane Mm. And that was massive because that was the thing that helped Percy really slow down in yeah. those last couple of meters, which is kind of like the most important part because that's kinda when you start like... when the unstoppable force hits the immovable object. <laughs> so, you know, instead of the sky crane, 15 different thrusters were actually attached to both of the Viking landers. They had a very similar supersonic parachute that opened up. Um, at a certain distance away and at a certain speed. So when they slow, it's actually when they slow down to a certain speed, it triggers heat shield gun, parachute out, mm-hmm. let's go. And so the only other major difference is instead of the sky crane, they have these really long suspension legs. They're like really heavily suspended, like super spring loaded so yeah. that they can take an immense amount of a hit mm-hmm. and still not hurt all the stuff that's in the core of the lander. And that is exactly what happened. The first lander was a couple of months before the second one on the orbiter. Um, The orbiter for both worked perfect. Mm. And the first lander, pretty much when they got the first picture back, they were in a rock field, like a really hazardous rock field. And actually, it turned out that they landed right in the middle of this rock field that you, if you were a rover, you might as well be a lander because you couldn't move. Just boulders and sharp rocks everywhere. Turns out that one of the legs was, the suspension worked and was completely and utterly shoved up and it was at like an eight degree tilt. And so, you know, it was just incredibly lucky. Like they fell into a freaking rock field like... (laughs) You know, but it survived. And and so this mm. thing hit the ground at like eight kilometers per hour, which is pretty, pretty big thud like. Yeah. And it, it was fine and it was grand. And the first one landed and the second one landed on the other side of Mars. Not a bother. Mad. And they both worked for years and it was such a success. Both of them worked well. Both the orb- orbiters worked amazingly. But the really cool thing about this Viking mission is that it is the first thing 
to actually get down and take some some samples of the Martian dust and rock and test it for life. They were testing for current life, extant life, life that is alive right now, pretty much microbial life. Mm-hmm. So, but just before the Viking landers did their life experiments, they actually figured out they were the the missions that figured out that that atmosphere is one percent the density of Earth's atmosphere, yeah. and that damn the JPL people just got it right. They made a really good assumption in that it was a very thin atmosphere and that it was mostly made up of CO two. This was something that we didn't know. Mm. and had CO2 and methane and nitrogen and not a lot of oxygen. And so there were three different life experiments, okay? Mm-hmm. One was called a gas exchange experiment. Um, but really what, they, what it did was it just scooped up some Mars dust or some Mars rocks and chucked it into this jar, what's called a microcosm, and simulated Mars conditions and go and is there going to be some changes in the gases that would only be caused by life? Mm. And nothing happened. They, they didn't get any organic signatures in mm-hmm. the gas exchange. The second one was somewhere in between Earth and Mars conditions. And so they put some Mars rocks and Mars dust into a jar and put in a bit of water, a bit of nutrients, and they got nothing. And then they try this thing called a photosynthesis experiment and they put in the perfect nutrients that you would need for earth life to give off chemical signatures mm-hmm. in the air. And they got two positive results on the first day and they were like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they did it over and over and over again for several years, both of them. Mm. And those were the only two that they got a positive result. That's so weird. So that really freaked people out. But it is very statistically likely that it was called a false positive. And they yeah. happen all the time in science. Yeah. Um, you hear of people, say, with, uh, getting, a, getting a positive COVID test in the current world situation. Yeah. And sometimes it's actually not the case. These things happen. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a false positive, unfortunately. And actually, a lot of researchers went and did a lot of science to figure out that there's actually ways that inorganic or non-living processes, yeah. chemical processes, can produce these compounds in a very strange and rare situation. But that's probably likely what happened. That was incredible. And this really showed for the first time that there isn't life on Mars. At least not now. Mm-hmm. And this was a huge buzzkill for the scientific community. They, was, they were really banking on there being some life or at least some signs mm-hmm. of something. Actually, at, at the same time, those orbiters um, were doing God's work. They were taking <laughs> loads of photos of Mars and they actually mapped about 97% of the Martian surface, oh, which no had never way, been wow. done until then. The Mariners had done a really good job. And actually, the Mariners kind of continued on after yeah. Viking missions and did really well in, in mapping the Martian surface after. But at this time, there was never such a good resolution for looking at Mars, right? Of course, And yeah. so what we saw were like these diverse features, like there were there's water ice sheets on the Martian poles mm-hmm. and they mapped those really well. Um, they mapped the differences in the hemispheres. So as you said, 
the southern hemisphere is riddled with craters and very large ones like you know maybe tens or hundreds of kilometers in diameter um and these huge valleys and vistas and you talked about the in uh what is it called again that the massive Val- like valles marianas yeah that is just incredible so they they got that in better detail um especially along the equator mm-hmm. and then one of those highest peaks that you talked about is actually the largest volcano in the solar system called olympus mons it's a hell of a name yeah it is pretty cool yeah. isn't it um but the thing is it's called a shield volcano and that just means that when the volcano erupted the lava was really fluid and kind of spewy and yeah. it like spewed out over miles and miles and miles and so you just have to think like how big is this thing so that it's three times taller than mount everest how much lava is it spewing out that it's still that big yeah just an insane amount of rock being spewed out so incredible the viking missions were a total bloody success yeah and so that kind of brings us up until maybe the kind of rovers and and observers that you hear today um in modern times and Mm. andrew knows a bit about that well, just a little bit, because uh, the Mars the Mars Observer, right? So the, all the the Viking missions were a huge success, like we were saying, and there honestly wasn't a need to be launching too many things for a while. So it wasn't until the nineties that NASA sent the Mars Observer, mm-hmm. and at the time it was a huge mission. Like you, we just said that um, there was rovers were two point seven billion dollars. You know that was Percy, wasn't it? Was yeah. this in the nineties? This was eight hundred and thirteen million dollars, which is a lot. You know, it's a, it's a lot at the time, it's hu- and it's huge for the time. Yeah, yeah, it's huge for the time. And they sent it out in nineteen ninety two, and it stopped working in nineteen ninety three. Okay, and it was interesting because it, you know, towards the nineties and t- until recent times, people stopped caring as much, and this led to the movement towards developing smaller and cheaper missions and this was (laughs) look how that look how far that got but anyways Mm -hmm. um but this was called the fbc program Mm -hmm. which was faster better cheaper oh my god but it didn't stop amazing work getting done one of the most successful missions ever was the odyssey Mm -hmm. Uh, great movie um but also oh yeah also a very very good satellite surveyor that was launched in 2001. And the amazing thing about the NASA Odyssey is that it is still working. It is still up there, still working. Whoa. So in 2010, it broke the record for the longest uh, serving spacecraft. And it is still going, still sending back signals. And it has taken... incredible. So remember the first time I said that the first flyby took 21 photos. Mm-hmm. And then the next one took a couple thousand. Oh, God, is it millions, is it? No, it's 350,000 images. Wow. Another surveyor was the European Space Agency, which sent up uh, the Express, which Mm. was in 2003, and it was meant to have a lander as well, but the lander went sploosh. Uh, Mm. But again, the orbiter got there, and again, still working, 2003. So the Odyssey is the longest serving, and the Express is two years behind it. So we've really fine-tuned these orbiters. We've got the orbiters down. Yeah. And in 2004, we developed the two rovers, which was Spirit and Opportunity. And 
total, total successes because they were the rovers that first showed evidence that at one point in time, Mars had running water, that there Mm -hmm. was at one point in time evidence of flowing water on Mars. And that, again, it gives you a little nudge towards, well, life likey the water. Life likey the water. Life likey the water. And and those and those Viking missions had really bored people of Mars. They like basically said, It's a no go, guys, go mm-hmm. home. It's grand, it's done. Yeah. And so this is hope again. It's hope again. And that's something that spirit and opportunity gave us. Sounds yeah. like the end of a book. <laughs> just, just just two Spirit, <laughs> opportunity and hope. Oh. But um much like many novels that that make us sad, spirit died in 2010, yeah. which is something I found really interesting reading about this was the way that we speak about these rovers. It wasn't that it yeah. stopped working. It was that spirit died. Spirit yeah. and spirit died in a sand, sand dune in 2010. It just it got stuck there and it couldn't get yeah, out. And wheel broke. It was it was let go. You know, it was. But but it's yeah, it's so funny because why do people do this? It's like they were supposed to last like three feckin' weeks or something, and they <laughs> yeah. last years. I know, yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. I think, but like opportunity, it worked from two thousand and four until twenty eighteen. Oh, it's such a blinding success. It's oh, just like huge. I, I guess I guess it is nice as well. It's just people basically paying homage because it is amazing. And the people who do these things, like they're they're like heroes, yeah. man. They're yeah. honestly incredible engineers. Like amazing. Uh, this this stuff purely is it's a passion, isn't it? And I to be honest yeah. though, if let's say if you're working on the on the opportunity or the spirit or the odyssey for that entire time we're only human we're going to end up building relationships with it whether we want to or not <laughs> you know definitely we're, yeah we're, we're going to end up getting all emotive about it and be like i love that machine that's a million million miles away and crawling over red rocks in a environment i could never exist with but i love yeah. it i love yeah. it <laughs> they do but and, and then they like disney came out with wally and that really gave yeah. it was completely off of that exact yeah. same thought process and just basically drawing emotion out of people for mm. these little little robots that that are just fucking out there doing our scut work <laughs> just just being all cute i i think the concluding point on all of that is that you know you might you might think that a lot of these rovers look the same they're already cute but they are doing completely different things mm-hmm like Spirit and Opportunity, they're they are twins, much yeah. like the Vikings. NASA are sending two because if one crashes, the other one they can yeah. still do a mission. So that makes perfect sense. One, the wheel fell off after three years. The other one lasted like eight or ten ten years. That's just that's what happens. That's why you send feckin' two, right? Yeah. And these things get better and better and better. And at our stage now, we're really thinking about getting samples in Mars and send them home. Because the most recent rover before Perseverance was a rover called Curiosity. And what Curiosity did was it actually had a very sophisticated lab hmm. on it. And it had a thing called a Raman laser. And it cool. had a type of mass spectrometer. And what these things do is they drill into the rock, they vaporize it into its smallest elements, and they see exactly what the heck is going on there and the percentages of every single element 
Yeah. And that's how you really figure out if life is there. That's how you figure out exactly what's going on. And yeah. so that's how they were able to figure out. Curiosity found out there were these things called hyperchlorites. They're a type of salt that is basically saturated with water. Mm. And they were really freaking out about this because they were like, yet again, there's another source of water on this fucking planet that looks like a, it's a barren freezing desert, but there are ways that water can still be liquid in certain very strange situations. So that's really yeah. cool. And so Perseverance's samples getting back to Earth is where we are right now. Uh, that mission that's going to be launched, NASA are very serious about that and the plans are already in place and mm-hmm. they're, you know, JPL are already, they're basically working on that right now. But really, it's just a very small rocket on a lander. The lander's going to have nothing else. It's just going to be built to shoot a small payload, very light, back into out of the Mars atmosphere. And the great thing about the Mars atmosphere is it's extremely thin. So if you want to shoot something out of it, you can actually do it. Yeah. Very controlled flight yeah. is extremely difficult, but just fecking yeah, just eating something yeah. at a single trajectory straight out of the atmosphere yeah. is actually a bit easier than you would yeah. think. It's actually quite a lot harder on Earth because mm. of our dense atmosphere. Yeah, and the gravity, and the gravity too. It's a tenth the mass, but it's thirty-seven percent of the atmosphere. It's all to do with density. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a third. It's a third of uh, of Earth's gravity. Yeah. And these things are really what we need to start thinking about when we want to send. Ultimately, want to send humans mm. to Mars. And where we are right now, as I said before, is our technology threshold is that we can send something that's about a metric ton to Mars. And most of the experts in NASA say that to send humans, because the fact that it has to have capabilities to be shot back out of Martian atmosphere, it needs to be about 20 tons. Yeah. But here's the deal. It's not like it's going to take us 200 years to get this technology because we've talked about how this is working at an exponential rate. Mm-hmm. we will get there and we'll get there probably sooner than we know but the question is is it a good idea and and do we do we really want to and so that is a, a debate that needs to be had mm-hmm. um, I, I think I think it will win I think people will win over in that the manned missions will happen because manned missions have happened yeah. to the moon I mean that's the most daft thing to think of yeah. see that big barren rock in the sky let's send some people there check it out slap a flag down take some fucking rock samples and get on home like it's absolutely daft but it's amazing but it it needs to happen I don't think any of these things are actually to help you in your everyday life but it's sure as hell true that when you hear about any of these things you feel a little bit better about humanity absolutely you kind of have a moment of huh we are going in the right direction. Things are moving forwards. Mm-hmm. And I think it just needs to be a situation where there's actually a, a benefit to sending people to Mars. And once that exists, it should be done. Even if it's something along the lines of, like, we can't get a rover that does all of the lab work. What What if you want to have more than one research question? What if one research question leads to a second one? 
and you need to build another rover, it's a whole lot easier to just have a researcher there who can just do a second yeah, experiment. Yeah, and that's an amazing point because what they say in NASA is that what a rover can do in a year, an astronaut can do in a week. Yeah. In terms of technology, reusable rockets are an emerging technology that oh, have completely yeah. changed the game. Elon Musk to, yeah, and SpaceX. SpaceX and just just turning the, the hype up to 10 oh, or 12 so cool. off yeah. the scale and, and just putting those videos out there of having the, the little marine platform out in the middle of Cape Canaveral in Florida it's and they amazing. yeet this thing into space and then they, they have two little uh, boosters that land. It's amazing. Back, right beside each other. Like they did one recently and they launched this absolute chunk of a rocket. This absolute monster. Yeah, that was like crashing on its side. And then suddenly it just right it just righted itself at the very last moment and landed. Like sure sure enough it like splooshed itself everywhere in like two or three minutes later. But it landed. And it just gives you a moment of like Holy moly, how is this a thing? Uh, it's so, that, so that, cool. That is kind of cool. When you said how it changes his attitude like really fast. Yeah. If you actually watch the the Perseverance landing on Mars, you'll notice that it looks extremely violent. And yeah. when the rover detaches from the parachute and the capsule, which it is attached to yeah. that whole time that it's going like <laughs> super fast. When it detaches, it actually, it starts rolling out of control and then it rolls right and it rolls like you know 180 degrees and back another you know 90 and 90 and then finally just above like gets that perfect attitude and so i think that's something that robotics is able to do and that humans aren't and so that's how automating these processes is is definitely going to bring us there oh for sure people are gonna have to be in these things when they're doing that crazy shit yeah. but we're going to leave it to the robots and the robots might not get us there super smoothly <laughs> you know we're going to be screaming or I'm like ah, I'm going to die I'm going to puke and then I'm going to die you know um, uh, shaking in your boots I have a feeling it'll have to be different to be honest because like the speed of deceleration like these rockets go from the like edge of the atmosphere on Earth, for example, and they're back on the lander in like 25 seconds. Yeah. I'm oh, pretty yeah, the G- sure. Oh, the G's. Man, the G's if you did that deceleration to a human body, you would be cleaning up the sploosh, which I've decided is the word of the day. You would it become is a the sploosh. Word of the day. <laughs> you would become a sploosh. <laughs> the sploosh juice. And you'd be, you'd, you'd you'd be, be like, mopping it up. <laughs> you'd be sending in the cleaning people going, um, don't ask questions and slipping yeah. them a few dollars, being like, hmm. Clean up on Booster 2, you know. There is another big thing that we haven't mentioned, and it's actually the biological effects of space travel. Yeah. Look, getting there, getting there safely and getting home safely. Yes, of course, that is the first thing you think about because that's the most dramatic. You smash the surface on Mars, you know, at 40,000 kilometers an hour. Yes, that's not pleasant. OK, <laughs> um, and that's great and all. But that might actually be easier than trying to fix the problems of, you know, how, how do you prevent cosmic rays from getting through your space capsule? Yeah. How do you prevent... Um, things like cataracts and cancers from being caused from radiation on the way yeah. to Mars. Because 
Mars is a hell of a lot farther away from yeah. than the moon. You can get to the moon and back in a week. It takes you seven months yeah. minimum to get to Mars. And over that time, what if you get sick? Any sickness. Yeah. You cannot pack you, you can't pack a booster and a rocket with infinite medications for all illnesses so like forget getting cancer from forget getting cancer from the radiation that's one problem that can probably be beaten but what if there's a natural development of an illness like that anything that could impede your work Mm. yeah if you physically you're like i i'm i am dying i i need to lie down yeah and the poor feckers can't even lie down they have to sleep standing up they're just like like floating (laughs) You know, they have to they have to strap himself to the wall yeah. and cry, yeah. you know. Yeah. But uh, there is that other thing as well of gravity. Yeah. And NASA in the International Space Station have done some amazing work on the effects of gravity on yeah, things man. like bone density um, and just causing lethargy in general. And actually just the, the reduction in your bone mass, you actually get shorter the longer you're in space. That's so, crazy. Uh, they're all still unknowns. Yeah. And NASA like to test everything. They like to test every single possible outcome mm. that they can at least think of. And that's a that's an easy one that you will want to test before you before you go, you know? It's a funny one though cuz I I'm pretty sure the conversation about 10 years ago was that if there was a mission to Mars there was no intention of there being a return mission. You know what I mean? Like at a, yeah. yeah, you have to remember that like it's one thing to make a tiny little rocket to send something home, you know, a, a sample or something. But a person, like, mm. it's not just a rocket. It's the fuel. It's not. It's the life support system. It's the life support system. It's food. It's, it's so many things. It's just even water. You just think water is oh, yeah. like one of the heaviest things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we need we're just like a big bag of it. We just need it all the time. Honestly, we're we're an absolute nuisance, and oh, so that no. that is the that is the question. And I, yeah. like earlier on today, I was doing some research, and I was I just kind of thought to myself, this isn't worth it. Like, <laughs> this isn't worth the twenty ton gap that we have. Yeah. Like, let's just put all of our effort and put all of our budget into these automated vehicles because they're the future. We, we're we so excited and optimistic to get people to these places. And yeah, we can get to Mars. We can. But we can't get to the next solar system. And we can't get to these other places because we're, we just work these little water bags and we're super fragile. And if we just send other things that aren't as fragile as us and are really inexpensive in the grand scale of things because when you think about it what was one of the major things that like killed some of those nasa missions like the challenger mission one of the challengers blew up and killed like four people including a teacher in america yeah that got horrific media coverage rightly so it was it was it was really sad and so this is what everyone needs to know when we're doing these things we get so excited that we kind of forget that this is scary i i i get i i do agree what you're with what you're saying but i don't think it's done for necessarily the reasons that you're thinking like it like Mm. when um 
when we landed on the moon and it was what one small step for man one giant leap for mankind Mankind, and in essence the leap was referring to we're here early that's what the leap was referring to it was referring to the we're probably not ready to be here but we're here anyways it's crazy that we haven't seen something like that in our lifetime yeah, well, we got a pandemic, so whoop de doo uh, <laughs> <laughs> We got a pandemic and we got some SpaceX reusable yeah. rockets. They are phenomenal. I kind of feel like, to be honest, our generation in particular, we went through all of uh, history and reading about all these incredible events. And we were we kind of grew up in the quiet age. You know, there wasn't anything huge. There was a market crash and stuff like that. But there wasn't huge, huge wars. And we were like, yeah. gosh, there's, it's been so quiet. <laughs> I wish I wish I could live through some history, and then we're all realizing that we're it's now it, we're living in it. It's a coin flip, man. You're either going to get the bad history to live through or the cool history to live through. Exactly, uh, but you that's know, really funny. We we have our cool history to live through, but like I I think going to sending people to Mars has much more to do with the psyche of our civilization and stuff, and you know, it's it's an important step to kind of live and move to other planets in the solar system. That's a big thing with the type 2 civilization. You know, we're a type 1 and we want to be a type 2. That's what we want to do. And this is an important step. I just don't know if it's worth it because even like we we did some reading on terraforming Mars and man, it has nothing for you. Nothing. Yeah, it's super hostile. Uh, it's super hostile. It's not it's not a good it's not a good thing. Like 1% atmospheric pressure. We take that for granted. We need to times it by a hundred to get it to something that humans can actively walk around in. Yeah. And you can't call it colonizing until you bloody do that. So, like you know, like I said earlier, it's like the thing. It's so low that liquid water doesn't exist on the surface. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It just it sublimates from ice to gas and the pressure doesn't exist there. To have and, liquid and it, water, and it just gets released. Exactly, yeah. it's crazy. And like, there is evidence that it once had an atmosphere and it had this flowing water, but there's theories that this could have been trapped into the crust. In in that uh, geography class that you weren't listening to in uh, secondary school or high school. <laughs> Uh, that's when your teacher explained the water cycle and that all that good stuff in the atmosphere is locked up as sedimentary rocks, limestone, sandstone. That's where all of the stuff goes. That's where your atmosphere gets locked up. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, I'm with you, Aidan, those people who didn't listen to their geography. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, to fix this problem, there's a number of routes that you that humans could take, okay? So they could melt the entire south pole of Mars. And that would... Brilliant. It wouldn't do it, but it would help. Mm-hmm. Um, with giant space lasers. Which don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's not like, uh, we'll make the laser. It'd probably be billions and billions of whatever it is. It's absolutely ludicrous. Or, mm. or there's another option, Aiden. We could heat the entire crust artificially of Mars to release the gas, like 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 a little electric blanket over the entire surface of the planet. No, oh, I thought that no. would I thought that would be. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Or 
if we made over 10 million nuclear fusion reactors, that would be enough energy to produce uh, atmosphere on Mars. That's nuclear fusion, by the way. Just in That's te- the one that we're like not that, even there yet. Yeah, exactly. But over 10 million of that, over 10 million of them on Mars and we got an atmosphere, buddy. And there's like barely one on Earth right now. Mm, yeah, pretty much. Um, we could deep drill into the planet to retrieve all of the compounds from the crust and release it into the atmosphere. But Frack Mars. Pretty much. But all of Mars. Not not just like one or two holes. Like the whole bloody thing. Not like just that huge Great Grand Canyon. Yeah. And you have to do all of this under the attack of solar radiation. Yeah, on a super thin atmosphere on a different planet that is completely in- inhospitable to you. The risk of sploosh is very high. The sploosh the, risk. The sploosh risk. The, there's an extremely high sploosh rate. The more likely thing to happen is that we'll, like the Simpsons, we'll just create these bubbles and just live oh. and live under these bubbles yeah. and like, and create an, a, a small pressurized atmosphere like we'd have on an airplane mm-hmm. and just cover it in like things to protect us from the radiation and we'll compact it so we're not you know getting any of the harshness of the outside and we'll live in cocooned house cocoon shaped houses which will protect us from all of the bad things underneath <laughs> these giant springfield sized bubbles and yeah and the thing is is that that sounds absolutely ridiculous and it is still a million times easier than terraforming Mars. <laughs> <laughs> to in compared to terraforming Mars, it's an incredibly reasonable thing to do. Incredibly absolutely. reasonably like making a giant bubble is basically just brickwork. It's engineering. Yeah, you just need to make it. I I heard one really good explanation of why terraforming is 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 just not feasible is because you have to think about Mars and its history in that it was theoretically and what people think is four billion years ago it was a lot like Earth mm. now yeah and there was water and a lot of fresh water um, in these lakes and craters and that is shown. By you look at where the Perseverance rover is right now, and it's in this crater which has a delta at the edge of it, and it has an inflow river and it has an outflow river, Man. and you can see all that. It's all deposited. So in that delta, there might be life. But the the point I'm trying to make is Mars is smaller, and it went through that process of drying up and becoming this barren landscape, and the cycle is done. Yeah. It's not like it can go back again. Yeah. The only reason that it was balanced and there was liquid water at one time is because it had a molten core. Mars does not have a molten core anymore. Earth nope. does. Yeah. We're all good. We have a magnetic field that protects us from the sun's solar wind because we have a molten core. Yeah. And so what that means is that when you try and restart this cycle, yeah, you might start it for a while. Imagine you built loads of these colonies and just pumped a buttload of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. You might create a warming effect. Yeah. 
And at the equator, Mars can sometimes be 25 degrees Celsius. That's feckin' perfect. That's really yeah. nice. But it's going to crash. And there is no way of the cycle repeating itself. Because it's done. It's over, yeah. It's four billion years older than us. It's, yeah. it's, it's so far ahead in the future that we should just be taking the lessons from it rather than being like, I want you to be Earth. Yeah, don't 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 dig up a coffin to perform CPR effectively. So we were talking about terraforming Mars. That's great. It's not going to work. Happy days. And we're in our spring Springfield sized bubbles and stuff. Yeah, love it. But none of us have talked about what it means to change another planet. So first of all, maybe might we might not know what the life on Mars or what the life that was on Mars actually is built up of and it might be a very different way that life on earth is built up of and so this is a an idea called planetary protection that was you know it was signed like 30 years ago by a bunch of nations on earth that basically they said let's not screw up any of the solar system anything yeah. that isn't the earth we're not allowed to go and 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 throw you know try and feckin grow potatoes you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because these things have huge knock-on effects. And I think it's even a moral obligation. It's important that you don't just look at something and go, I want to change it to be useful to me. Mars is useful in its own way. Mars has all the answers of our future. It's not going to help us live right now. But we can figure out what the hell's going to happen to Earth in two or three billion years time by studying it and so that's why we'll go but not to live there that's kind of dumb i don't know if i if i totally agree i mm. i like i agree with some parts of it. yeah i agree with some parts of it now and i think that there should be extra care taken in the potential changing of these things like there's a really interesting thing about how we if we were to send people to mars what if there were surviving viruses or bacteria that killed the astronauts and we weren't entirely sure how it would affect earth so would you bring the astronauts back that's another question um yeah because because that was a big thing that happened with the moon missions where the astronauts got shoved into a container for two weeks after they landed in quarantine they get yeah. they get quarantined for weeks don't they yeah yeah well not anymore uh because they've determined that uh the moon the moon be be very dead but a very funny story from the three lads who who walked on the moon they were saying that when they were in this apparently fully enclosed quarantine on the off chance that there was a deadly like living creature on the moon which would kill humanity and it had to yeah. be airtight they got ants Oh my god! Yeah, that's so, so funny. Yeah, so they got ants in the quarantine. Um, <laughs> that is know. unreal. But what? What I like? You were saying that don't change Mars. That's kind of what humans do. You know what I mean? It's yeah. It's it's what we are. Like, we are doing it very successfully to like, this planet. Yeah, we we have completely contorted Earth to mm. our needs. And I'm pretty sure there's bags of shit on the moon. There's. <laughs> There's like sealed bags of shit on the moon. Neil, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's <laughs> shit on the moon. Oh my, they don't talk about that. Yeah, they're there though. Beside the flag. 
Well, man, whether or not, whether or not we eventually do send manned missions to Mars or colonize Mars, anything like that, I sincerely hope that we do leave bags of human poo on Mars at least. (laughs) I completely agree. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed our chat wildly further than we expected about our favourite red planet. (laughs) This is the end of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time. If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned, why don't you give us some of your money? Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.